All right, Stella. So today we're interviewing Hannah Barnes, and she's the investigative producer at the flagship BBC show called Newsnight. It's like a current affairs program. And um, before we get into the interview, we thought it would be helpful to kind of talk through a timeline of what happened at the Tavistock, because Hannah wrote a book, a new book called Time to Think, where she basically uh, dug through hours and hours worth of documents and transcripts about what happened at the, the JIDS Tavistock service. So to give listeners some context, we're going to start with a timeline. So maybe where do we start us off here for the listeners? Yeah, well, it was established in 1989 by a guy called Domenico de Shegli, and he, he thought there should be a gender identity development service in the UK. It started in 1989. It was tiny. And it wasn't until 2004, Mm -hmm. 2005 when Sue Evans, she raised concerns that people were being fast-tracked. She wasn't very happy. And a a brilliant uh, report was filed with recommendations in 2006. And yet it it was ignored for 15 years. They didn't look at it. Yeah, Sue Evans was a clinician who worked there. We interviewed her on our show. So like pretty early on, she was sounding the alarm about something that she felt wasn't right at the service. But like you said, it was so small that it didn't get much attention. And then in 2011, they started, they'd already, they were administering puberty blockers and recommending puberty blockers. But on a low level, the numbers were tiny, but they started a trial to see mm-hmm. how will these children fare? How, how will it be? And in 2016, by then, the numbers were really starting to rise. I think 2015 is when the numbers started to rise exponentially. Then right. the, the results of the trial came in, of the, the first, the interim, the early results of this trial in 2016, and they were not good. And from then mm-hmm. on, it seems like, you know, JIDS at the Tavistock was in disarray. The numbers, the clinicians were overwhelmed with 50, 80, 90, 100, 100 different caseloads. Like, unbelievable mm-hmm. pressure was going on. And a lot mm-hmm. of people raised concerns. Sonia Appleby, the chi- child safeguarding lead, she raised concerns from 2017, 2018 onwards. David Bell, the, the you know, the lead psychoanalyst in the Tavistock, he raised concerns and they were just, they kept on getting battered away. And that's why the timeline is so shocking, because everybody who raised mm-hmm. concerns, it kind of got nowhere. It didn't go anywhere. Yeah, there was an internal investigation, um, and that didn't really lead to many important changes either. So uh, then in 2020, there was the, the Kiara Bell and um, uh, High right? Court case. Yeah where uh, they ruled that it was unlikely that kids could consent to the treatments that were being offered. Um, That was later overturned, not that kids could indeed consent, but that they didn't feel it was appropriate for the high court to make recommendations on medical interventions. And then even just a month after the Kira Bell, where the Tavistock at this stage must have been really feeling very embattled, the... um, Care Quality Commission came in, the CQC, and they inspected the service and they rated it inadequate, which is the lowest rating you can get. They This is in right. January 2021. And still it went on and still people continued to complain. And still there was kind of they were being batting away. Then March 22, a full year, 13, 14 months later, Dr. Cass, Dr. Hilary Cass's first interim report came out. Again, the results were not good. There was a lot of questions asked, a lot of issues raised. And it wasn't until last summer, July 2022, where they finally said, 
we're going to flag that we're going to close the Tavistock, the jids at the Tavistock, because mm-hmm. this is not, as they said, they didn't feel that it was safe in the long term for children with gender-related distress. And we've yet to know what's going to come out of this because they're not yet closed. But mm-hmm. this book has just come out. And Hannah, yeah. b- being able to write this book in the midst of such a kind of a, a quickly, fast-changing landscape must have been torturous for her. But she did well. Yeah, she did. And and I think it would be helpful too, since we don't go into great depth in our conversation, what were some of the issues found? So like things that stand out to me were that there was really no long-term evidence about puberty blockers, but they were being called a time to think, a pause button. And even when the results came out indicating that actually they seem to be the first step in a treatment pathway, the service as a whole did not really have a sense of urgency in in how to explain this, how to provide informed consent to families. There were a lot of complicated cases where there were severe mental health issues, abuse, neglect that were still referred on for the medical interventions, even while some clinicians felt that was highly contraindicated and a really bad idea. Um, what are some other problems that stood out to you? A few, a few things stood out to me. Like you said, the kind of the, the, the focus on the medicalization of gender, even some, you know, there was one case study of a, a woman who later detransitioned and she was offered five times puberty blockers over the course of, of her session. So a kind of, well, puberty blockers are what we're here for kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. But to me, what was really shocking was the the presence of mermaids. Mermaids were a lobby group. They were a charity. They were very pro affirmative. They were very um, very invested in um, believing that medicalizing the ge- child's gender identity was the right way and the only way. And they just seemed to have an extraordinary influence on a, mm-hmm. a medical clinic. That to me is mm-hmm. it's shocking and frightening and very familiar to what's going wrong mm-hmm. with the clinics around the world. Yeah. And, you know, similarly, you know, Mermaid seems to be an organization that is uh, attractive to a certain type of parent who's highly invested in the medicalization of their child's identity. And while, you know, we talk all the time about it's the clinician's responsibility to provide the informed consent for the family, and a lot of families are pressured into it. In the book, Hannah also describes several clinicians saying they were very concerned about parents who seem to want these interventions more than the child does. So there's a lot of this complicated uh, kind of parent leading the way in some of these cases. And then in other cases, it was the family feeling pressured by clinicians. Another thing that stood out that we touch on in the interview is the absolute like gamble of what kind of clinician yeah, you might get if you do come to the Tavistock service. Some clinicians, yeah, some clinicians were taking their time. They were very seasoned. They were taking a slow psychodynamic approach with maybe a year or more of assessment. Mm-hmm. And then some other clinicians were offering puberty blockers in the first or second session. Yeah, so that felt like an yeah, a real inconsistency in how careful are you going to be kind of assessed and treated. And the vulnerability of parents who love their children, who bring the, the child to the, to the specialists, to the, the best in the land. And it's a lottery. You might get this clinician who'll work this way. You might get a completely 
different perspective from another clinician. And it depends on who you happen to be assigned that day. That's how random it was. There was no kind of theoretical approach of we're going to give some children this type of approach and some children that. It was random and it was completely dependent on the clinician you got. So it it felt like you could have, some people could have got great, great care. And some Mm. people could have got really disastrous care. It's, it's, It's a frightening story. It's a frightening read of how a medical yeah. scandal can happen and people can talk about it, complaints can happen, concerns can be raised, whistles can be blown, and it still goes on. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll let you uh, listen to this conversation with Hannah. It was really interesting, and she had a, a lot of incredible, incredible, like, nuanced and careful, thought-out points. And I think there's many more questions that, that this book raises for all of us. So here's our conversation with Hannah Barnes. Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hi, Stella. Well, hello, Sasha. We've got a good one today. All lined up. We sure do. Yes. Um, Very welcome, Hannah Varnes. You're the woman of the moment. Thank you for having me. (laughs) <laughs> um, I've, I must I'll start off by saying uh, I've written two reviews so far of your book <laughs> um, because for, for two different places one for, for the Sunday Independent and one for CanSG the Clinical Advisory Network and um, it's, it's an extraordinary book it's an extraordinary book you've written it really is I think it's a really important book and you know I, what I was thinking when, when we knew you were coming on I was thinking what turned Hannah's head how did it? How did it all start with you? Because I know you were working in Newsnight, presumably talking about the economy and Boris Johnson and Brexit, at the time. And somewhere, somewhere along the way, somebody must have emailed you and said, "Have you, have you, have you heard about what's going on in Jids at the Tavistock?" No, it wasn't that. I think I first came across it at all in 2017, and there was really not very much around at all. But there were a couple of newspaper articles, and I was on maternity leave. So I had a bit of time and, you know, and um, there was a BBC television documentary about what was going on in Canada and and Ken Zucker, who I know you've had on the show about what was going on with his clinic and um, what had happened. So I watched that and I just thought it was really interesting. No more than that. And then didn't think much about it. And then I was back at Newsnight um, and I had a different role. I was editing the daily programme and then I went back to sort of doing what I love doing, sort of stories and I think David Bell's report about JIDs had just been leaked to the Sunday Times. And, you know, as most journalists, I just thought, well, that sounds, you know, this sounds like there's a story there. I had no idea whether what those 10 clinicians who went to see him were saying was true and was completely open-minded. I didn't know anything about it. But I just thought something's happening. So it's worth exploring. And, and it really was that and then I came across um I spoke to Michael Biggs and I knew that he had this he'd come across this interim data from the from JIDS's early intervention study which hadn't been 
published and we didn't have any of the final results at that time. And he kindly shared all of the original documentation with um, Deborah Cohen and myself. Um, and we thought, well, how do we approach this story to start off? Um, you know, we're both really analytical. Deb is medically trained. Why don't we, you know, let's look at the evidence base underpinning the treatment. We thought that was a really sort of sensible way to get into it. And we had all this original documentation and then another another source gave us more actually on top of that. And we analysed it and, 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 and that's where we started really. Um, you were working for BBC Newsnight, mm. who kind of had a, well, uh, in my world, the BBC had a, a name at the time of being not touching anything to do with criticism or anything like that. Well, I think it's safe to say we were the first at the BBC to do it. I pretty sure um but I have to say like we were not impeded in any way and we had a fantastic editor in in Esme Wren and my editor now Stuart McLean has been unbelievably supportive I think we, we we sort of operate a little bit separately so we we were massively supported and uh, by Newsnight um and we sort of operated a bit separately to the BBC sort of news machine I suppose um but yeah I mean I mean, I didn't find out actually till Stephen Nolan's podcast, which I don't know if you've listened to about Stonewall, that apparently there were discussions going on in parts of the BBC. They didn't like what we were doing, but I I was not aware of it at the time, certainly. Um, um, So, yeah. And and, and really, I think the approach that we took and why I think we were so successful, actually, was, was an evidence based approach and calm and we never questioned people's right to transition nor their identities. We were simply asking questions about mm-hmm. the standard of care being provided and whether each and every one of those young people were getting the care that they, they should have been. So you, you took this kind of evidence-based medicine approach to examine what was happening. Uh, I'm just curious, like in your kind of history as a journalist, was that a common angle that you took on stories? Like, or do you mm-hmm. Did you often investigate? Kind of medical evidence around treatments and things like that or was this kind of new for well, you? I'm not I'm not a health journalist so I'm not a, a specialist in that sense mm. but I you know I'm a I've tended to do I spent many years making radio documentaries um, and I'd sort of do long form analytical investigative stuff so the approach that we took um sort of parking the medicine if you like was one that you know it was always sort of source related you know so we had documents like you we you know, it was, it wasn't people's opinions. Like so much of our reporting was based on, you know, um, on original source material. Like later on, when we um, questioned the uh, the robustness, if you like, of, of the reporting of the, the the review into JIDS, we had transcripts of those interviews. Now, we we weren't we couldn't prove what those clinicians were saying was true, but we had a you know a sizable amount of material that was relayed during that review that did not seem to be reflected in the conclusions. So, you know, it was that kind of approach is, yes, yeah, certainly one I've taken in the past in my career. And, and obviously, you know, Deborah's worked on many, many health stories. So then you decided to write the book, Time to Think, and you you kind of, you begin at the beginning with Domenico de Shegley, and he, if I've got that right, and he, he started in 1989, if I'm right, and it was like the equivalent of a broom cupboard. It was a tiny little office in the Tavistock, and 
Am I right in thinking that they didn't really clarify whether clinicians should follow gender identity theory or follow a developmental model of understanding? Or did the Shegley, or did you find out anything around that? Or is that going way off your wheelhouse here, asking you that? Um, I'm not sure I quite know what you mean. So he started at St George's, which is another very yeah. large London hospital, and moved to the Tavistock and Portman in, in 94. Um, I mean, I don't, know, I don't know if there was a precise model, but the idea was yeah. that, you know, it was it was sort of the name of it, the Gender Identity Development Service. They're... they're, they're they were never setting out to to change someone's gender identity, and and largely at that time in those early years, it was you know largely talking therapies. So I don't I don't know. Is there a model yeah. of gender, gender identity theory? I don't know. I mean, they... there is. There is. There's more and more. There's a model, and so if one clinician follows gender identity theory, the presumption, the underlying presumption is, well, it's child led, and if the child seeks puberty blockers or if the child identifies as a certain way well I think then the the clinicians follow that or well, not yeah, yeah I mean I don't know that I don't know that I don't know that expression yeah. I think it's disputed isn't there whether there's a you know but um yeah. but certainly yeah the child was at the center of it I think throughout and and was respected but but I think in those principles that that you know that he wrote right at the beginning of the service he did acknowledge that sometimes by addressing other difficulties that a, a young person might have, then a byproduct of that might be to resolve the gender-related distress as well, which was really important. Well, yeah, I mean, when I was reading through that portion of the book, his early model, it seemed like such a, I don't know, a, a more balanced, slow approach. He seemed very interested in all the different pieces of a young person's life. And it really resonated with me because we also interviewed Ellie, who yeah, I yeah. know you I talked to, to in the yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. And she described that too, that like when she was meeting with, I think she met with yeah, him directly, that yeah. they, they explored a lot of different things. And she, of course, ended up concluding that she didn't have any interest in yeah. transitioning. So it definitely felt like that. But to your point, Stella, I think what I learned reading the book is that at any given point in time, it didn't seem like there was an official model per se. Everything felt a little haphazard. And maybe at the beginning, Chegley had more time. Maybe he as a person was more clinically oriented to be curious and like broad spectrum thinking. But it seemed like as time went on, and there was more pressure and time constraints and resource constraints, things just moved in a way without a lot of direction. And and I don't know if that's what you've experienced. Well, I think think what's always been the case is that that different clinicians act differently. <laughs> you know, really right at the beginning with Domenico, um, Domenico De Cioli, mm. um, through to through through to now. And and, you know, it was it it it, it did seem to be a bit slower um, in those early years. And of course the puberty blockers weren't available until till the age of sixteen. So mm-hmm. there was no it, it that in itself would have given more time potentially because th- those that option wasn't available. Um, but also, you know, we have the testimony of, of Sue Evans, who this is the early 2000s, so still a long time ago, still mm. 20 years ago. And even then, mm. without those pressures that the, the, the more recent clinicians faced, there were still, she felt, you know, some clinicians who were too yeah. quick to, to, to refer for physical interventions, you know, after four sessions, she says in the book. So 
I think this it became exacerbated over time, and 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 as referrals you know went through the roof, and caseloads were in you know incredible for for individuals. Um, clinical practice diverged enormously, and I think it really telling that. Um, you know, the CQC, the Care Quality Commission, our healthcare regulator here in the UK, or sorry, in England, um, you know, they found in 2021 that some assessments could be two sessions prior to commencement of physical mm-hmm. interventions, and some could be 30 or even 50. Now, yeah. that is an enormous difference. One, one is a couple of months and one is years. And so how can mm. you... So depending on who a young person and their family are are assigned to, you could get a completely different experience. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I think that was always the case, but obviously it just got, you know, bigger. I think so. So just to to back to the question, sorry, that Stella posed, what made you decide to write the book? I mean, I know you were working on this with Newsnight. Mm -hmm. What was the moment or what was the why? I think I got to a point where I thought I can't not. I mean, I didn't have a desire to write a book particularly because it was quite a frightening prospect, but I just knew too much. And it wasn't that I was ever blocked or anything like that at the BBC. As I said, they were absolutely hugely supportive. And this was exactly the kind of journalism that, you know, Newsnight does. But there's only so much you can do. You can. There's only so many sort of 12, 13 minute films that you can put out. And it was, and I just thought I can't, I have to, you know, it's not for me to tell people what to think, but people need to know this so that they can make their own minds up. And I think for the clinicians involved, um, there was an element of, you know, this needs to come out of the clinics and into society. Because I think if you're, you know, an av- partly engaged average layperson, you might think, you know, this is part of the NHS, um, there's no disagreement um, on amongst frontline clinicians about how best to care for this young group of people and where there is it's it's motivated by transphobia whereas nothing mm-hmm. can be further from the truth and i think it's about you know bringing the debate out and not a debate about trans people of course but bringing a debate about how to care for gender diverse young people out into into wider society it really mm-hmm. did feel like the, 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 the clients or the children or the patients, they were completely dependent on who was their clinician. And they could have got brilliant clinician or they could have not. And also then there was the caseloads, which were building very fast. So I'd say at, at some point it turned into a train station or certainly it was, go, it was taken on too much. I remember one quote saying, you know, if you have a caseload the size of a small primary school, yeah, that's Dr. Anna Hutchinson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, 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 and Anna Hutchinson made that point to, the, you know, the medical director of the Tavistock, the then medical director of the Tavistock, saying that, you know, that there wasn't enough time to think. I mean, obviously time to think is, is the rationale for the blocker, but it, it was also that it was too, there were, there was no time to think for any of these clinicians either. And oh. it was only when they, you know, could step away or had a few moments to reflect that, that they, that they were so concerned and, 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 um, you know, and, and I just think it's incredibly brave that people, you know, like Anna, like Natasha Prescott, Anastasis Spiliadis, you know, it's very rare for human beings to admit they might've got things wrong. And I think to put your name to it is, is extraordinary. 
and to say that we didn't always do the thinking that we should have. Um, and then they tried for mm-hmm. years to change it for years. Yeah. And like one theme that was running throughout the book, every time you interviewed somebody like um, Anastasis or Anna, like they would say, you know, I got there initially and there were things about it that seemed strange to me. But I, I imagined, well, this service knows what they're doing. I mean, these are experienced, seasoned clinicians and they have a whole system here. And every time these individuals had like a question or a suspicion or a feeling that something's not right, they kind of like talked themselves out of it for a while and said, well, they must know what they're doing. There must be good evidence behind this. And it was so fascinating in the book. You kind of describe like step by step the lack of evidence, the lack of data even being collected, the lack of information gets revealed to these clinicians little by little, and then they feel completely blindsided and have those moments where they go, oh my God, what have we been doing with these yeah, kids? Well, like, am I allowed to can swear you just the, talk the a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, I think, but, yes, I, because I think this absolutely right. There was a process and, and, and for some people, it, you know, there were different speeds of it, but it was, you know, it was the, this doesn't feel right, mm-hmm. but maybe I just don't get it. But this isn't like other places I've worked before. But but hang on, I'll give it a bit more time. But it's not sitting well with me. And then it's no, something's not right here. I'm going to try and change it, and I try to change it, but nothing's changing. And then you leave mm-hmm. because you know. And I think it's exactly that. So I think you know, in the earlier years after puberty blockers had been rolled out more widely to much younger children. There were concerns, but at that point, they were understood as providing time to think. And actually, the rationale makes perfect sense. We, As far as, you know, it doesn't seem that actually in practice they do work that way. But, and without any data showing you otherwise, you thought, well, actually, that's really helpful to some of these young people, having some time to think and take the distress away and as far as we're told by the endocrinologist, they're completely reversible. And so even with those concerns about the way JIDS was functioning, it wasn't overwhelming, I suppose. And then when the data mm-hmm. came back from the early intervention study, the early data, which showed that each and every one of those young people at that time had progressed onto cross-sex hormones or gender-affirming hormones, whatever terminology we want to use, um, mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and as Anna Hutchinson says, what, what are the odds of every single young person thinking exactly the same way? Because mm-hmm. adolescents don't generally. And so there was that. And there was also the fact that the young people that they were seeing and referring for the blocker were not the young people of the Dutch studies which underpin this, which themselves are not particularly strong, as I know you've discussed a million times. Um but to apply a limited evidence base to a completely different group of people, they were like, you know, and, and, and it, it's bizarre because, you know, when this was happening in 2015, 2016, um, you know, the team in Finland had noticed exactly the same thing, that actually yeah. the young people we're seeing are not the people of the Dutch study. They're not psychologically stable. They're predominantly girls who's distress has started in in adolescence jids were seeing exactly the same thing but those conversations were not coming out of the clinic and and even you know dr polly michael and, and dr bernadette wren they told the uk parliament they were open about it 
we 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 don't just prescribe we don't they don't prescribe but we don't just refer young people for whom there is some evidence that that this helps we've extended it to those you know who are living in care who are autistic who are struggling now I don't think there was no ill intent there but it certainly wasn't evidence-based they Mm -hmm. thought they were extending it to help people but I think when data came back that Actually, some of those young people weren't being helped. They, they didn't change direction either. And that's, that's what's surprising. Sorry, that was a very long answer. <laughs> what, what I was thinking, there's two things I wanted to say about that. One was that shocking um, quotes that you, you took out of Parliament. It was 2015, 2016, mm, 2015. for Bernadette Brown and Michael say, oh, everybody who wants puberty blockers gets it, which is absolutely anti-protocol at this stage this was not but to me that's very much that where they were clinicians coming from a gender identity theory perspective whether they knew it or not they were very much we're in the affirmative if you want it you get it this is this is the new way of thinking it's a kind of a new perspective but I think for me reading it like 2004 2005 Sue Evans made a a, um, you know she kind of effectively blew the whistle David Taylor wrote an extensive report with a lot of recommendations and she was deeply upset 20 years later or 15 years later when she sees what he wrote was exactly on the money what needed to be done then so we're talking about 2005 2006 yeah it was a haphazard messy I would argue for as a psychotherapist, from my point of view, an unthought out clinic. They didn't know what perspective they were taking. They were they were just as you as you go. Sue didn't agree with some people's way of doing it. You know, there wasn't an actual we as a clinic. For example, they were situated in the Tavistock, which is famous for analysis. Mm -hmm. And they, they didn't bring a psychoanalytical framework well, I think some it. some <laughs> did some did and you know and I think and, and, and Sue says, no no but but I think there's been this problem if you like I don't know if problem's the right word but there isn't agreement on on really anything because you know is yeah. there isn't agreement on on what it is being treated and I use that in the very loosest sense yeah. not not to pathologize and therefore if you can't agree on what's being treated it's very difficult to know what the best way to treat it is and, and even indeed how you measure a successful outcome. So, yeah. you know, yeah. um, when when this early audit was done back in, it was published in 2002, it, it, it sort of raised this issue of, well, are young people distressed because they are trans? Um, and that is distressing because, you know, what you're, you're not in the identity you, you, you want to be. Or... Um, are people trans because they're distressed? And I think as time went on, that fundamental lack of of agreement on how to frame it, you know, if if you believe that someone can be born trans, then the treatment that you would administer would be very, very different to someone who believes that actually a trans identification can sometimes be as a result of something else or even somewhere in the middle that, you know. And so without a fundamental agreement on what it, was what we then then there could be no agreement on how to on how to help those young people if that makes sense yeah yeah, yeah. and exactly and then in 2011 you started the 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 jid started the the study of yeah. that's when it got serious because mm. they said right let's do a study on how are these children faring finally on puberty blockers let's yeah. see and as you said, the kind of the, the holy fuck kind of moment <laughs> was in 20, if I'm right, in 2016, yeah. 
when the results of that came out and it was like, stop everything. The only thing good about this is the clients are happy because the actual clinical measures are saying this is not working. This is not uh, a clinically successful trial on any level. Well, exactly. I mean, in it, I had, it was really fascinating talking to Russell Viner, Professor, Professor Russell Viner, who was the, the lead investigator of that study. He's the endocrinologist. Um, and, you know, doing the study was the right thing to do because all the, yeah. the only data they had available was from the Dutch and albeit it looked promising, but it was very small, small number of people, you know, at that point, obviously no long-term data at all. They only had the, they didn't even have the, the initial one really, but it, it just come out and they did the 2011 one um they they had the the online version um but but you know that from 2006 it, there was talk about that that this seemed to be a a good way uh to, to to care for this very small group of very distressed young people with lifelong gender incongruence so they did the right thing to add to the evidence base they're like look we're not sure we've had these concerns for many many years about bone health about whether um, it's sensible to block puberty in adolescence because of all, everything we know about development and whether that might have an impact on the brain. All those things were discussed all the time. It is, you know, it's in the book. There's, they were, you know, they were open about their concerns, but at the same time, they thought, well, if there is something here that could help this this small group of very distressed young people, then we should we should do it in a sensible way and conduct a study. And obviously, there are debates about the, the study design, but that was, you know in theory, kind of a good approach. But then to to roll it out as policy mm-hmm. without really having any yeah. data back, not any proper data anyway. I mean, only 23 people, I believe, had, from the top of my head, had, had started when Polly Carmichael spoke to the press and said, we're going to roll it out. Um, yes, and then you say, and as you say, in 2016, when it came back that um, at that time, I'm not sure actually how many how many would have gone on to um, cross sex hormones by that point? Cause clearly not all, but um, as in of the whole 44, but all of those who were eligible had, and, and actually there was no increase in wellbeing. It's um, yeah. And there was an increase in suicidal ideation among natal females. If I remember correctly, there was an increase there- in, well, self-harming there's some negative from what i remember of this well that's that's quite complicated it's disputed i mean they, those are the data that were found by, by michael biggs in um a board paper uh, a tavistock and portman board paper from june 2015 which it would seem were not known to any of the regular jids clinicians no one knew that they they'd been submitted <clears throat> however um, but that is what they showed. Yeah, you're right, Stella. But Russell Viner says that he does not recognise those as interim data from the study. He had nothing to do with it and he was lead investigator. He says that that was a a researcher at the Tavistock who crunched loads and loads and loads and loads of scores on about 100 measures. Um, and, and that's what came out. But he, he told me, uh, and it's in the book, but... Um, that he, he did not recognise those as interim data. He didn't request the analysis take place. Um, so I, uh, to be totally fair, yes, that is what they showed. And there were statistically significant increases in suicidal ideation and um, a couple of other things. And they didn't look good. But I have to say that the, the, 
the person leading that study says that they they were not proper interim data and they were only for a they weren't for the full 44 i think they were for 31 but but yes yeah, certainly even even if you like parking those what they got back in 2016 and then Polly Carmichael gave a presentation to WPATH, I think, in 2016, or it could have been EPATH, That's forgive right. me. But but that yeah. showed we, we, we are not getting the findings of the Dutch. It couldn't be clearer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, yeah it's... Uh, from then on, it felt like now we're going into a medical scandal. It felt messy until 2016. And then when they got there, this was my read of it completely. <laughs> Nobody else's. But then it went into, well, now you're working on data, disputed or not, but certainly very worrying. First of all, you were administering arguably experimental treatment with the puberty blockers. Then you got interim results and it wasn't as experimental. It felt to me like now it seems like a, a medical scandal started to unfold. And it seems like the clinicians, like Anna Hutchinson, got a shock when she saw that research. It, it, it was not what they were led to believe would be the, the results. No, absolutely. And people like Anna and Matt Bristow and Melissa Midgen and Natasha, you know, all of that, they all, they all started acting completely differently. They extended their assessments a lot and they started to view, um, you know, a referral for puberty blockers in a completely different light. And I think Natasha Prescott says in the book, you know, if I didn't feel comfortable with that young person going on to cross-sex hormones, because in all likelihood that is what would happen, then I wouldn't refer for the blocker. And so all of that extra stuff, like actually what a physical and medical transition would be like for that young person, had to be considered and explored at the start. Because if it was the case, Mm -hmm. as it appeared to be, that every single one... Uh, and in the end, obviously, one didn't out the 44. But but at that point, if every single one went on to physically transition, then that had to be talked about. What would, the, what would be the impact of going on testosterone? What would be the impact of going on estrogen? Um, and so, you, you know, several clinicians, like, completely changed their practice. And, yeah. um, but the service as a whole didn't. And then you, you had this mishmash, this diversity of practice this clinician lottery yeah that that was remarkable when when I read that thinking about like what it would be like if you had worked as an employee like this kind of not not low level because of course these are really intelligent and good clinicians but you are like someone's employee you come into the service and you're told a set of things about puberty blockers and the pause button and all that and when the data is collected that shows otherwise, rather than a policy-wide kind of like rethinking of the procedures, you just have to take it upon yourself as a clinician in this service to decide. Like I remember you said one clinician wrote up some sort of fact sheet to try to give to the patients and she was waiting for that fact sheet to get like approved by the Tavistock and like she just kind of made it up on her well, own. Yeah, so that was a- it's very much like each man for himself kind of feel well, that was yeah. a different that was a different issue that was uh 2016 again uh and the JID staff had had a presentation from a very senior consultant urologist James Bellringer about the difficulties of performing vaginoplasties well, surgery if, if puberty mm. had been blocked very early in 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 boys oh, because there wasn't enough yeah. penile tissue to to use to do the the, the safest and sort of the best uh, surgical procedure um, 
And and everyone listening to that presentation that I spoke with absolutely passed it on to every single relevant family from there on in. But when Melissa Midgen tried to get that codified, if you like, Mm. and make sure that it had to be in every single assessment of relevant families, it it seemingly didn't happen. It didn't happen for more than two years. Um, Mm -hmm. And and, and, and as you say, you know, the clinicians that were present at these meetings where information would come to light, to the best of my knowledge, passed them on. But but if you weren't there or you joined the service afterwards, you didn't know what you didn't know. So, for example, Kirsty Entwistle who joined JIDS Leeds mm-hmm. in 2017, she didn't know either of these things, so couldn't yeah. pass them on to families. And uh, it, it seems to me there was a lot of turnover of staff. There was a lot of, like you said, there was almost an arc of people following the, the others and then kind of asking questions and then perhaps some people leaving. But I'm thinking of the clinicians you interviewed Presumably, a lot of them were interested in invest, investigating what was going on. What about the what about the clinicians who wouldn't be interviewed by you or who didn't want to be interviewed by you? Might they have been? Might they have given a much more? Oh yeah, I gave them puberty blockers as soon as I. You know, you would have arguably got the people who were. Who well, were I did speak incre- to people who were very positive about the service as well. Um, I did speak yeah. to some of those people, and 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 they're reflected in in the book as well. I think I think what was so striking is that even those who do, you know, are, are kind of proud of the work they did at the service, um, have no issues looking back, um, they said strikingly similar things to those who were most concerned, but they just interpreted them in different ways. So, oh. well, for example, pretty much, I mean, not 100%, but almost you know the vast majority of people talked yeah. about um the level of you know same-sex attraction before and, and being bullied for it before coming out as trans especially with with girls um you know someone I, I've called David Burroughs in, in the book talks about you know that it not being appropriate for, for for the majority of young people coming through the doors of JIDS to to go onto puberty blockers and they only they only referred sort of three out of a caseload of about 100. But they felt really positive about the service. And, and, and probing them a bit more and saying, but but presumably there were other colleagues who did refer much quicker and, yeah. and, and more, and they said yes. And I said, well, does that worry you then? <laughs> because how do you square your yeah. practice where you thought it was actually not appropriate for the vast majority to, to, to those? And, and they said, well, maybe they're more experienced than me. And I said, you know, and, but actually... Some some people were content that these these were just discussed and nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And actually, other people, those whom you know are most exercised in the book, just that wasn't enough. It wasn't it wasn't enough to admit everything's changed, but then nothing to change in terms of practice. It wasn't enough to admit that, um, you know there was no way of of telling who would benefit from the, from physical interventions and who wouldn't that it was you know so it was it was really interesting you know and 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 uh, 
So people didn't actually fundamentally disagree on the way JIDs functioned. It yeah. was just their interpretation of what was going on. And, you know, uh, another another clinician, um, Alex Morris, talking about, you know, someone who, who may well have been gay in a, in a different environment. But she didn't mm-hmm. think, you know, that was a sensible way of looking at it because that person lived in an environment where they were happier being trans. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for the show. To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH, providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress, GenSpect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, Rhyme. Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And now back to the conversation. Yeah, you you tell a story about this in the book. I mean, I, I want to touch on what you said, though, just now. There was a lot of talking. You talked about how these clinicians reported. We had lots and lots of meetings, not necessarily where things were resolved, but where people raised these concerns and you know, in some moments, there wasn't enough time to think for sure. But in some moments, it felt like there was an incessant amount of talking about these problems, but nothing actually being resolved. So it's very, it's it's also demoralizing and exhausting. And I can completely imagine how after being in an environment like that for some time, you just leave that kind of arc you talked about. But there was one story in the book where you talked about with Kirstie Entwistle, who was in the Leeds division, the Leeds branch. And apparently she was kind of working alongside another clinician and they had fundamental differences in how they understood a specific patient, like really conflicting about what the treatment outcomes should be, what they should be exploring with this young person. And rather than having some sort of like clinical discussion, they separated them. They put Kirstie with some other person and they put that other lady with some other person. So basically you know, it kind of is a a little uh, microcosm of what you're saying in the big picture, which is people are seeing the same things, but having completely different ideas about what to do with it or what to make of it. And the the service seems to just be like, well, if you don't agree, you go sit over there and you go sit over there (laughs) like a teacher with two naughty students, you know, like if you can't sit nicely together, go on opposite sides of the room. Yeah, I mean, I it was remarkable. I I found that really striking. And then for another Leeds colleague to say well that was the only sensible solution because their approaches were incompatible but it's like well, what's that what are the implications of that yeah. that you have you have clinicians right. working in the same service who whose approach to the work is so fundamentally different that it is impossible for them to work together I mean Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, what does that mean for the children? Well, <laughs> I mean, that's what was so striking. Like the 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 Tavistock seemed so invested in like defending itself or kind of like justifying its decisions. But what all the whistleblowers kind of said is like, well, what about the kids who are coming through this service and getting this very haphazard, like random 
So almost like rolling of the dice, like a gamble on what type of care they're going to get. That was really striking to me. And like the, the whole time, I haven't finished the book. I mean, I know what ends up happening, but I'm just wondering if you have any sense of like, is this denial going on, you think, in terms of the, the management? Do you think it's just like a an optimism? I don't know if you feel comfortable answering this. You can say you won't. But like, I know, you know, they, they were talking about how Dr. Polly Carmichael was always this like very optimistic, like go-getter kind of person. And I wonder if it's just a, a denial or an optimism that like everything is fine, everything is going well. What, like, how could all this be obvious and at the same time not addressed? I just don't understand. And if you have any thoughts about that. Um, well, I think, I think Anna Hutchinson says it in, in her interview with, with the medical director. She says, you know, it might be quite intolerable to admit that you've made a mistake if for a decade you've been perhaps unnecessarily medicating young people. So I don't know. That might be part of it. I mean, I do find the reluctance, the seeming reluctance of JIDS to admit that anything has gone wrong, really, apart from the numbers overwhelm them, sort of mm-hmm. yeah, sort of quite odd. I mean, you know, even and they haven't, and they may have done now, but, you know, to be fair, they hadn't read the book, but but when they were responding to, to some of the British newspapers, you know, the Sunday Times and what have you, but to, to keep insisting that each and every single young person gets a completely tailored assessment to their needs and and everything is thorough, when even the CQC have found that two session assessments have taken place and, and clinicians, mm-hmm. named clinicians, have gone on the record to say, we didn't always do very thorough assessments and I'm not proud of myself and, and I was part of that system. And there's young people on the record saying, my assessment wasn't very good. I just don't know how you can keep holding that line. And that's not to say that yeah. some some mm. assessments, prob- you know, I absolutely accept were excellent and some young people have definitely been helped. But to to hold the line that everybody got the best care that they could have, I don't think stands mm-hmm. up to scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were there many clinicians who wouldn't speak or were there many clinicians who left the service? Did you notice, I've always wanted to know this, so you might know, are there many clinicians who've left JIDS over the last 10 years or so and did they go off into different fields? Did they leave behind gender and go into... Oh, I yeah, always like, thought yeah. they could work. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, gender's and, tiny, isn't it? Most of them would have gone off into different fields, yeah. The majority don't work in gender yeah. anymore. Do, did they not want to speak to you? Like, as in, was it a blot in their copybook? Was there, were they kind of, no, I don't want to speak about it and I'm not massively proud of my work in there? Or what um, was the response? No, I mean, obviously some people de- declined, um, but were, were mostly very polite. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I was actually uh, amazed by how many people did speak to me. You know, they're not all quoted in the book. Um, okay. Um, you know... And some who were only speaking about JIDS for the first time since since they'd left, and they found it quite, I think, cathartic. sort of quite well, partly cathartic, but partly sort of shocking as well. Because when they were talking about it, it's like, wow, it was kind of, you know, madder than I remember, or, or what have you. And it, it's 
you it know, sounds like I, a dysfunctional family, like, you know, when everybody is kind of convincing themselves it's all okay, but you step out of it and you go, oh my God, what were we doing? Yeah, and I think so. And it's really interesting you bring up the point of a family because I think that it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, a, it's really important. Like, these people all really liked each other and it was a good place uh, to work in many, re- in many ways. Um, yeah. And... You know, and they were encouraged to feel that way, that they were a family. And that and that made the raising mm-hmm. of concerns and, and then the in, inadequate response to them, like, really, really difficult. Because when, when, when clinicians raised concerns, they weren't treated and responded to in the spirit that they were made, which was these were clinical concerns about the way the service was operating. It was like, this is a personal attack on someone we like. And it's like, well, that... That wasn't the case, and and, and also I think mm-hmm. it made it it mm-hmm. made it hard for people to leave in some cases as well because you thought, well, I like this group of people and I respect them, so surely things can change, but they didn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to say, probably in more recent years, the last couple of years, I'm sure things, everything I've heard, and I spoke to clinicians who who've been there very recently, and I think generally there has been much more caution you know whether that's because mm. of obviously the high court I mean obviously it failed on appeal but I think bringing it all out into the open the judicial review and obviously the CQC report Dr Hilary Cass's interim review I would say our reporting in there from Newsnight as well um, <laughs> you know there is far fewer prescriptions taking place now and Covid you know it's a whole load of things but sure but it's not you know one clinician described sort of sort of three time periods sort of pre-2014 where there was a lot more time and you could do these sort of um um what you know you could actually make a clinical formulation and it wasn't so um taboo to do that there wasn't so much activism Mm. and then they described this sort of 2014 to 18 period as like mad panic where they Mm -hmm. yeah lots of probably Mm -hmm bad clinical decisions were made and then coming out of david bell's report uh, which you know absolutely blew the whole thing into the public eye um was was sort of differences in practice and and some much more cautious uh, not everybody i have a couple of points that i wanted to ask you about um what i was when i was reading through the book you talked about this kind of Um, discussion that was happening in the earlier years about the decision to offer puberty blockers and how some clinicians were pointing out that if we offer puberty blockers, that's going to be the reason people come to us. Oh, yeah. And how it's almost like this iatrogenic thing where offering the treatment is what actually creates the demand for the treatment. And it was very interesting because, you know, lest people think that you are your book is an attempt to kind of divide people who want puberty blockers and get them from people who actually don't think this is a good treatment. You give a story in the book about a young trans guy and his mom, a female to male trans guy, who is very comfortable identifying as trans, but felt they got inadequate care regarding the pushing of the puberty blockers. So can you just touch on like how providing the puberty blockers in and of itself was like throwing a wrench into the system that almost made it like inevitable for these problems to come up. Like that's the sense that I got. And I thought it was really insightful. I don't know if I'd go as, as, as far as that. I mean, I think, okay. But but I mean, so to split those in half. So yeah, you've got Jacob's case and then, but 
So Domenico DiCelli is actually really interesting on this. Like he's been really open about that mm. he felt completely torn. So he had these groups and, and the young people themselves and their families. That is absolutely what they wanted. They wanted the puberty blockers. Yeah. And on the other yeah. hand, it wasn't so much other groups at that time, but but the trust was really uneasy about it. Like that isn't what the Tavistock did. They did talking mm-hmm. therapies. And he you know, and he describes this absolute tussle, like, how do I keep the service alive and keep both groups, even if not happy, but, you know, content? Um, now, he he does seem to, you know, there, there's certainly an element of if we don't have these drugs and, you know, Sue Evans, you know, says that she, she recalls him saying that basically if we don't offer the treatment, then they wouldn't come. Uh, and, and another person confirmed that to me as well. But I don't think it was quite, you know, there were other reasons to keep the service open as well. So both could be true. That, that If you didn't offer them, mm. you wouldn't have a service. But also that there was a good, it was good to have a service because there was nothing else that provided these mm-hmm. young people with, with, with any time to talk. And, you know, talking about Ellie, that is exactly what she needed. Like someone who kind mm. of understood that this, you know, what was going on for her. So... I, I I wouldn't put it as so sort of calculated as that, but but Jacob's case is incredibly interesting and traumatic and distressing on so many levels. And mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you know he 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 did fit the you know the old bill, if you like. He had lifelong gender incongruence, gender related distress, um, which had heightened at the onset of puberty. He was completely terrified of going through female puberty. So on paper, he, was, he wasn't he was asking for puberty blockers and nor was his mum, but on paper, he was the perfect fit. And at that time in 2014, those clinicians probably felt that they were doing the right thing, you know. And, yeah. and for him, yeah. it, it, he yeah. had terrible physical and mental side effects. And I think... His case is so important because um, he's saying, in his experience, the only thing that JIDS could offer even was was one form of transition, which was medical. Mm -hmm. And he didn't, that hasn't benefited him. And he felt that isn't really what he wanted either. And that they're just as they're, you know, and there are different ways of being trans. And even, even you know, many in the trans community would, would, would agree with that, that you don't have to take hormones to be trans. Um, and, I mean, so it, 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 it's, it's really interesting. And that's not to say that, that others haven't benefited from puberty blockers because they're also, their stories are in the book. Um, and I've spoken to others whose, whose, whose accounts are not there. But I think this one side, the problem was there was only one treatment pathway. That's not to say that everybody went on it by any yeah. means, but that was the only treatment that JIDS offered. Now, they'd say they weren't commissioned to offer anything else. But, you know. It, yeah, uh, yeah and, and I think Jacob talked about how, like, it would have been so helpful to have someone support him in interacting with the world as a guy what does it mean to be seen by your peers as a boy like which is interesting because within the jid service that is actually if someone is really going to transition and this is the 
the, the way the family feels it is best for them. That is the psychological aspect of transition that's really complicated. It's socially complicated to go from living in the world as a girl to living in the world as a boy. And that would have been a non-medical way for the service to help Jacob and his mom explore these things. So it's ironic they went from like a service known for this depth psychological exploration to a service that really was almost just like a medication provider. Well, that's certainly what some people felt at, at, at particular points in its history. That, that yeah, mm-hmm. um, you know, any, Could as, I- as Bernadette was saying, anyone who, who wanted them got them. And, and it seems that even those who didn't particularly want them, some of them got them as well. I mean, not that they were, you know, I don't want to imply that they were yeah. pushed, but, they, you know, Anastasis Spiliadis says at one point, you know, who's going to go away with nothing? If the only thing on offer is mm-hmm. this is a referral for this medical treatment. He said, I'd take it. Because who, who would go away with nothing or come back and see us in four months for an hour's yeah, chat? Yeah, after a two-year waiting list, right? right. Like, you're going to just come to the right. service and go, yeah. Which is a different point, but it brings to mind, I remember Richie, Richie Heron, who, mm. who ended up detransitioning. But he was basically going for talk therapy for a long time. And they, they said to him, we're cutting it because you're not going on to cross sex hormones. So why are you coming back to us? And, you know, as in that's if you're not going there, why are you coming to us? I know it's a different point. Mm-hmm. But it, it feels like that's the direction we're going. And it, we're, we're going through a process to get there. I'd like to I talk. Mean, you can I just come you, back quickly on that? Sorry, Stella, but like in Jid's defense. Yeah. The, the, you know, the idea was that, 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 you know, other services, CAMS, Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, would be helping and dealing with, you know, the other things that were distressing to the young people. And that just didn't happen. And, you know, those services are underfunded, austerity Britain, and, and they would, you know, in some instances, take the opportunity to get rid of these young people, get them off their books and put them to JIDS as soon as the word gender yeah. was mentioned. And I think, to be fair to JIDS, like some of that, Talking therapy should have been provided by other people, and it simply wasn't. But sorry, uh, you you are right, and I think the child and adolescent mental health. I think you nailed it when you said that they were getting people off their books and shuttling them over. Mm. It, it did feel a little bit like that. They do that in Ireland. On the other hand, there is an an ethical imperative if you're a, a director of a clinic to say we're overwhelmed, we've too many people, somebody needed to say, no, this is not 140, 100 caseloads. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. Somebody needed to say. But I think you're right. I I think like, you're right. You're absolutely right. Love, and, and NHS England you, should have stepped in as well. They should have. They were completely overwhelmed. Susie Green and her presence, she was like, she was like a presence throughout the book and has died now. What you thought about her. She's just like this omnipresent. At one point, you actually say the word omnipresent, Susie Green, who phoned up at one point to kind of discuss some clients um, basically didn't get on puberty blockers and should have. So her, her, her impact... Was she very good friends with Polly Mark Carmichael? Or what was going down? I, I can, for just for, oh, yeah. for listeners Sorry, who yeah. don't know who Susie Green is, we're from the world here. <laughs> can Can you explain, Hannah, just for context, yeah. who is Susie Green, and and why would it be perhaps odd that she was so involved with the Tavistock? Susie Green was until very recently the the head of a, a, a charity called Mermaids, which works with gender nonconforming and transgender young people and their families. It's been going for over 25 years. 
And Mermaids as a charity was really interesting because they they grew up with JIDs. So it started as a group of parents whose children were all being seen by JIDs in the 90s. And to start with, they had a really positive relationship. And sort Mm. of the outlooks of both Mermaids and JIDs itself were quite similar. So, um, you know, some of their early writings sort of said that only the minority of of young people who have gender distress in in childhood would would probably transition as adults. Um, There can be loads of complicating factors and different ways into someone's gender-related distress and, and probably different outcomes as well. So they started off and those people that were there in the early years found them actually, you know, really positive to work with. And and, and certainly in Domenico Ticcioli's writings in the early 2000s um, and the 90s, it was, you know, all, all, all very positive. Um, mermaids were involved along with another group called Gyres in, in really pushing for JIDs to bring in puberty blockers at younger ages um um but although so were other clinicians and so were endocrinologists so i think it's really too simplistic to say it was all pressure from these groups and that's why they did it but they were part of it and then over time um so so polly carmichael would have known susie green since the early 2000s when she herself joined jids because all jids members went to the agm and and polly carmichael and domenico de Cheli would would go to quite regular meetings i i have no idea if they're friends or not but they you know i i wouldn't feel at mm. all comfortable saying that but that they they you know they knew each other for a long time um in a professional setting at least and over time Mermaid's influence at JIDS was certainly felt by everyone that worked there. You know, one one clinician based in Liege just said, we were answering to mermaids. And Anastasis Spiliadis explains that, you know, on occasion, I don't know how often it happened, but it certainly happened more than once, Susie Green would request that a young person in their family's clinicians be changed because they weren't getting what they wanted and and he says that that was um you know accepted and and those clinicians were changed now jids absolutely dispute that any clinical decisions were influenced by mermaids but what we do know is that that she, she you know she 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 would write she felt perfectly comfortable writing directly to Polly Carmichael and making those requests. We know that she, she wrote to Polly Carmichael. There was a big email leak of um, mermaids emails. Um, and she wrote to, to other very senior board, she wrote to the chief executive and chair of the trust as well. And there's, there's an email with another board member saying, Oh, Susie, we should think about, Oh, you know, we'd really like your input on our website so that they're, they're, they're consistent, both the JIDS website and the mermaids website. Mm-hmm. Now, it might be that that's not unusual to, you know, patient groups, but clinicians felt that, you know, even if mermaids were not in the building, which they were sometimes in the waiting room, that they were in they were in the room with them because so such was the such was the influence. And I think I think it's more subtle than you know. I've had this so many times over the last few weeks. Oh, you know, it was all about mermaids and they're running the show. I think it's much more subtle than that. Because, you know, they didn't get everything that they wanted. You know, for, for years they, they lobbied to have the age of cross-sex hormones lower to much lower. I mean, it, it is just under 16. You, there, there's evidence of sort of 15 years and eight months and stuff going on. But, but, you know, they wanted much younger ages and they never got that. But I think it was more subtle. I think, mm. I think they were 
they were present in, in clinicians' minds. And also I think it probably stopped Jids changing direction, like the, the, the sort of, I don't know, the fear, if you like, of mermaids when, when they could have. And, and maybe it explains why there was such a reluctance to put things on paper that we discussed earlier as well because of the way um, that, that certain groups might react. Um, yeah, and, and, and a bit, a bit, I mean... The, the relationship started to sour probably from about sort of 2018, 19 onwards. So they're not they're not influential now, and they're they're highly critical of JITS. They, they think they're too conservative. So, mm. yeah, but I mean, I think to to Stella's point earlier um, about like what is the model being used within the JID service? If they were closely aligned in any way with mermaids, the mermaids' perspective is that early intervention is good. I mean, maybe in the early years, they were a little more nuanced as, as you're describing, but where mermaids came to stand was that early intervention is good, child-led, give the child the interventions they feel is best. And there was really very little scrutiny of these kinds of medical interventions from mermaids' perspective. So if they were in some ways kind of like intertwined with Tavistock at any level, I can imagine that that at least indicates something about the theoretical background that the Tavistock might have been using, right? I I don't know if that's accurate, but that's how it feels to me. Mm. And and it might also kind of give us a little clue as to why in Finland they were seeing the same exact things. But as Rita Kertu said when she came on the show, like, they were alarmed. You know, the Finnish clinicians were alarmed and they had, I guess, what I think is an appropriate sense of, wait a minute, wait a minute, something weird is happening here. Whereas at Tavistock, they were observing the same trends, at least on on paper, but 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 they did not seem as concerned about providing those interventions. I think some were. I think absolutely some were, you know, and, and, um, you know, Melissa Midgen tried to say, well, do we need but a different I, I pathway mean, like here? The, but yeah, from, no, from, from, yeah. from a, from a, from a, from right, a clinic right. perspective, no, um, you're right, you're right. right. But but absolutely yes. people yes. are concerned because they're like, exact, we're, we're seeing yeah. exactly the same thing. And, 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 you know, I've been told that that paper, um, I'm not going to try and pronounce her name because I'll get it wrong, but yes, who you've had on your program from Finland. You know, that was really massively discussed amongst groups of clinicians in JIDs and they were like wow yes this is what we're seeing but but seemingly nothing changed why didn't why didn't the higher ups the higher ups in the service didn't stop the horses and like what is going on here i mean that's the part that's baffling there's a great expression in therapy which we would use with clients is you know whether they want to leave their job or leave their husband or whatever you can build evidence forever and incessant talking can sometimes lead you to believe you're doing something about it Mm. and it's 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 a danger among us therapists though just because we're talking about it and wringing our yeah, hands really doesn't true. mean we're but um really I, I'd hate to finish this as an Irish person without asking a little bit about Ireland <laughs> sorry to jump in um because you do give a chapter to Ireland and mm. it it feels it feels mad what's going on here that we've got the children's service who are following JIDs we've got the adult national gender service who reject a W path which is you know fundamental affirmative um, what was your take on the Irish situation? <laughs> so I'd known about the Irish situation for a long time, so I was really, I really wanted to get it in the book because for me, it's it it's really important because what you have in Ireland, in Professor Donal O'Shea and, and Dr Paul Moran, is 
two men who have dedicated their professional working lives to helping people successfully transition. And Mm. what they were seeing was that the work of JIDS was not safe and not thorough enough to be meeting that ultimate aim. And so, you know, this is not about transphobia because these men spoke to me at length about how, in their view, life-saving and transforming a successful transition can be for the right people and how disastrously it can go wrong if it's not done carefully. Um, so for me, for that reason, it was really important. And, and can I preface this with one thing, just mm. while you're collecting your thoughts for people who don't know, because myself and you, you do, Hannah, that from something like 2013 onwards, JIDS came to Dublin to administer effectively their clinic. The Tavistock Clinic came to Dublin. Well, at first, the children were being flown over. And then from 2015 onwards, the the Tavistock were coming to Dublin, which feels, frankly, a little bit off the wall in my perspective, because I'm like, we had plenty of mental health services that could have helped these children, I would argue. And this is this idea that only gender specialists can help gender-related distress, which is hotly disputed in in certainly my circles. But from 2015 onwards, there was this clinic and it very much brought the JIDS model to Ireland. And Mm -hmm. so the the JIDS model didn't exist. The affirmative model didn't exist. The, you know, arguably mermaids-influenced model didn't exist in Ireland. And then it came, you know, you invaded us, Hannah. <laughs> with another invasion from the British, but it was it came and it stayed and it stayed in the children's service, and now there's a split between the adult service and the children's service because the adult service have maintained what they always did, which was a very sober, serious um, process that people had to go through if they if they were to medically transition, and mm. so they're coming from the children's service. And, you know, Don Lachey and, and Paul Moran have said, you know, they've said they're, they're really mentally very ill. Some of the young people who are coming from the JID service over to the adult service. Yeah. Oh, and, I've and also, you tell no, me. but I mean, also that the, they just weren't, appro- you know, they, they picked up exactly the same things as, as um, I mean, what's striking is they picked up exactly the same things that, that clinicians were trying to blow the whistle about you know, in, in JIDS in mm. England, both at Leeds and, and, and in London. They, they've they identified, you know, subsequently what the CQC and, and, and Hillary Casser found as well, that there's, you know, in terms of diagnostic overshadowing and things like that. But but um, but also they, they, they experienced the same response in terms of the, their concerns weren't seemingly taken very seriously and acted upon. Um or if they were taken seriously, they weren't acted upon. Um, you know, and, and, and they had to basically put in place themselves a, a, a sort of informal policy that they wouldn't be acting on JIDS assessments in the vast majority of cases. So they would reassess all of those young people again because they, they didn't have faith in the, in the quality of the assessment. Um, in, some, in some cases, they said that it appeared that the young people were, were fine and thriving, so they were happy to continue their treatment and they didn't take anyone off treatment but they weren't happy to um, either prescribe puberty blockers as a 
for the first time or, or indeed put someone onto cross-sex hormones for the first time without reassessing. Um, and I think it's so, you know, they, they describe young people who have been started on hormonal interventions by JIDs who haven't left their bedrooms for years, who yeah. have been in and out of care, who are, you know, engaging in, in underage sex, sexually risky behaviour, um, alcohol problems, both in the family or, or, or the young people themselves. And, and you know, they're, they're seeing young adults now who there's one example that Paul Moran gives in the book where he says, you know, there was such a missed opportunity to help this young person. Like they're happy, like being mm. trans and they, 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 but in his assessment prior to their surgery, he took that opportunity to try and actually help make their life less chaotic. But that was six years afterwards, you know, and, and very difficult position that they, you say they didn't take anybody off, but I can see why they wouldn't take anybody oh, off. Absolutely. It would have been, yeah. I mean, they, they, very difficult to yeah. pull somebody off. Yeah, I mean, they've said that that was just, topic. you know, there was huge risks yeah. in, in, you know, in stopping someone's transition. Um, so they didn't do that, no. Um, but, I mean, interestingly, Donal O'Shea saying that actually a significant number, he didn't give me a precise proportion, have chosen not to, having been approved, chose not to even start with hormones or blockers. So it, it's once they got to the adults, it's um, you know, no, but even once they got to the adults, and some had stopped. So it, it's it. This isn't a story. I've said this so many times, but it, this isn't a story about ideology. It's not about the rights of people to transition. It's about whether it's safe and 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 whether the best care is being provided to everybody. So for some, Ooh. that will be you know, as as Donald O'Shea and Paul Moran say, a, a successful medical and perhaps surgical transition, but. Only after, you know, but you've got to make sure it's for the right people. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, of course, you know, the Tavistock is scheduled to close in the spring of this year. So the entire service has been found now through several various kind of reviews and reports not to be safe not to be operating in a way that is safe. Well, that's just, yeah, that's, that in mm -hmm. itself is disputed as well. I mean, I think there's two, it is absolutely the case that, that it is mad to have one centre in the, for the, serving the whole of England and Wales. Um, and they have been completely overwhelmed by numbers. And that's what, that's what some people would say the closure is solely about. But I don't think that's credible. That is certainly part of it. But there has been an acknowledgement by almost, well, every outside body that has scrutinised JIDs, whether that's the High Court in terms of their data, whether it's the CQC in terms of their practice and, 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 and Dr Hilary Cass in terms of the, the approach taken, that, that something needs to change as well. So, yes, we need more services and closer to where young people live um, to try and get through the waiting list quicker. It's not a good thing that anybody waits three years with no help. Um, but, but, that, but, mm, but there has to be a different approach as well that caters for all. 
Mm. But that centres on this idea that only the gender specialist can can help you. So children you described in the book, you know, taken hours to get to the appointment and then there's only maybe six appointments that were maybe two months apart and stuff like that. That Just this idea, the gender specialist will be able to treat me and no other person in the vicinity in the 300 miles between me and the gender specialist could treat me. When some, somebody like myself who's a more a general kind of psychotherapist would say lots of people can work. If we could just open our minds a bit, lots of people could work with coping skills, distress tolerance. There's, there's lots of ways to work with them. But I think but that's this, the idea the clothing, of the new services, that there will be so much more, be far more holistic approach and that it will be um, connected with, with other services. So there will be, you might not ever make it to the... Yeah the central gender hub or whatever mm. it, it, the, you know so i think that is that is the aim i mean it's just going to take a huge amount of time i imagine to to get up and running mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um yeah well so well thank you so much for uh your book um it's 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 a really it's been a wake-up call i'd say for an awful lot of people who've been kind of scratching their head wondering what's going on once you read the book you just see too much, too, too much evidence in this book to to dispute that there, there needs to be change in the in in this situation. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender: A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.